0: from KQED.
1: Hey QED in San Francisco. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, did you eat granola this morning or give your kids a prepackaged snack in their lunchbox? You are not alone. Up to 60% of the foods U.S. adults eat are ultra-processed, meaning they likely contain ingredients like synthetic emulsifiers, dyes, stabilizing gums, and firming and carbonating agents. These additives make our lives easier and make our food last longer, but they also mean we're eating food that can't really even be called hauled food, in the words of our guest, Chris Van Tullican. He's a scientist, doctor, and author of the new book, Ultra Processed People. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Risa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Pausing to read the ingredients list on the food we eat is a sure way to encounter words we've never seen before. Mixed in with the multisyllabics or stabilizers, emulsifiers, gums, oils, glucose. Bacterial slime in our ice cream is how our guest this hour puts it. Seeing all these ingredients is a telltale sign that what we're about to eat is an ultra-processed food, or UPF, which make up, on average, 60% of our diets here in the U.S. And they have some devastating health effects on our bodies, lifespans, and the planet. But they're basically impossible to avoid, and modern life makes them pretty necessary. Here to talk about how we got here and what we can do to improve affordability, access, and choice for food that is actually food is Chris Van Tulleken. He's a scientist, doctor, award-winning BBC broadcaster, and author of Ultra Processed People, The Science Behind the Food That Isn't Food. Chris, welcome to Forum.
3: Marisa, it's such a treat to be here.
1: Well, I'm happy to have you here, even though this is like a little bit of a heavy topic, I'll say. (laughs) Um, And I kind of explained it a little in the intro, but I would love to have you start talking a little bit about what UPFs are. You say, you know, it's generally something that includes ingredients that are not going to be in your pantry. And I think when we think of processed foods, we think of chips and hot dogs and junk food. But there's a lot of things we think of as healthy that are also falling under this category.
3: That's true. So there's there's both processed food that's good and ultra-processed food that you think is healthy. So food broadly falls into three categories. This is how the scientists who developed the idea of ultra-processed food divided up. So there's whole or minimally processed food, and that's like milk. You can drink it straight out of a cow. You shouldn't drink it straight out of a cow because (laughs) you'll get brucellosis, but you can. Or there's like an oyster or an apple, and you can just eat those foods whole and raw. Um, Then there's minimal processing, and that would include things like... um, Pasta is minimally processed. Flours are minimally processed. Um, Cheese is processed food. And um, it's not associated with diet related disease. Butter is processed. It's a mixture of milk and and salt. Um, Ultra processing is different. Ultra processing is uh, has a very, very long formal scientific definition. And it was a way of scientists trying to describe the category of food that we sort of have known intuitively for a long time was driving diet-related disease. So I always think science is only interesting if it either completely turns your world on its head or it confirms everything you already knew. And this is one of the latter. You know, <laughs> essentially, our, my my mum has been right for the last four decades in saying she had this anxiety about these in new industrial foods wrapped in plastic and with all these exotic health claims and now we have the science that shows that my mom and lots of mums and lots of grandmas around the world were right that right. this food is strongly associated with negative health outcomes
1: and of course that includes a lot of things that i mean over my lifetime has been you know, marketed as ways to be healthy, to to lose weight. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, right, when we talked a lot about health food as low-fat, no-fat, zero-calorie, margarine, you know, coming up in the 70s versus butter. Um, So uh, when we think about this, I guess— How does this fit into like that kind of arc in terms of how we think about health food in our culture? It seems like a lot of this is taken on that mantle and is almost kind of lying to us about the health effects, right?
3: I think lots of listeners will. And I think that idea of lying is really important. This is food that tells you lies. And a lot of people at the moment, I think the reason the book is doing well in the UK is because people feel gaslit by their food. They've been eating what they're told to eat by the packages. They're eating things that are low fat. They've bought low fat mayonnaise. They've got their, you know, low salt, low sugar ketchup. They're drinking their diet sodas. They've had their. They've got their baked chips, yeah. and somehow they keep gaining weight. And that's the genius of the ultra processed food category: is it wraps up all of that diet food as well into one big lump and says, "No, all of this food has been engineered." to drive excess consumption. And it's also contains novel molecules arranged in novel ways that really mean it, it isn't food. And I don't say that casually. I think one of the really important things to remember in this discussion is to have it with some kindness. Many listeners will, particularly at the moment, there's a cost of living crisis around the, the globe, many listeners will be unable to avoid this food. So I have not written a book that says, you must cut this out of your diet. Here is my diet plan. That I acknowledge as a public health problem is going to be impossible for lots of people. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, there is a lot. It, one good rule of thumb, if there is a health claim on the packet then it is almost certainly ultra processed. <laughs>
1: okay. What else? I mean, if you're standing either in the grocery store or in your pantry trying to sort this out, what's the quickest way? I mean, we kind of mentioned this idea like if you don't look, recognize the ingredients.
3: If you look at an ingredient list, so, so the big ones are almost all the bread that almost all of us buy. Right. Or bread. It's like something meals. we think yeah. of as,
1: you know, healthy.
3: We think of bread as being bread, but bread really, proper bread has three ingredients wheat. Water, salt, that's it. And the the yeasts that make it rise can come from the air. Now, of course, if we add a bit of yeast, that's fine. People have been doing that for a long time. And you might add some potato. There are other things you add to bread that are fairly normal or some seeds but the bread that we all now buy so a lot of people will read if you look at your bread list it'll have emulsifiers it might have e472e it might say datem it might say diacetyl tartaric acid esters of mono and diglycerides of fatty acids that's a very common one
1: very impressive that, that contains, you can rattle that off chris
3: i've been really practicing <laughs> that i've done a, i've done a lot of media for this book in the uk but i mean the the I by training i'm a molecular biologist so these sort of chemicals I deal with in a, in a laboratory setting, and we understand quite well what they do, and we're understanding increasingly well what they do to the human body. So our bread has become very adulterated. And processing, as, as you kind of made this beautiful point, humans have to process food. We have, compared to another animal of the same size, if we looked at a non-human primate or a pig, we have tiny teeth. We have these tiny little jaws. We have very short digestive tracts. We've extended our digestive system out into our kitchens. So processing is completely normal. What isn't normal is there's now a very, very small number of companies making almost all of our food. And those companies are owned by pension funds. And it perhaps doesn't surprise us, shouldn't surprise us, that food made by companies that have legal obligations to generate financial growth in other ways they have to sell us more and more food year on year even though we have enough food that that food is somewhat different to the food that's made in our kitchens to nourish us and love us and uh, by people who, who, who love us who want to nourish us
1: I don't want to strike me as you said pension funds. I mean maybe it's good for pension funds if we don't live all to 120. Um, oh but, that's
3: an incredibly sort of that's a whole new um uh, Let's not get yeah,
1: conspiracy theory. Here.
3: Oh, I love that. I love but that. Well, you heard it here first.
1: Let's talk No, it's
3: not a conspiracy. It's not a yeah. conspiracy. This is just this is the normal it's capitalism. The public It's 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 capitalism and that's I'm not an anti-capitalist the book is not anti-capitalist what we do know though is and this is not popular in the US or the UK is we do need more government regulation at the moment so there's a fear that both our governments have of nanny statism of creeping socialism of big government and in fact what the situation we have at the moment is all the food we eat is controlled by unelected Corporations, who are owned by a very, very small number of people, you know the the pension funds. Most of us don't have a private pension, and we we are far more harmed than the food than we benefited in our pensions. So um, there's no conspiracy, but we know that well regulated companies can make enormous profits. The pharmaceutical industry is pretty well regulated. It's one of the most profitable sectors. Uh,
1: so. Before we get into a lot of – I want to get further into, like, what we can do and how, you know, how we can kind of make good choices and all that. But talk a little bit about what this does to your body because I want to make clear this is not a diet book. This is not a diet show. We're not just talking about obesity or being overweight, correct? I mean, that can be a sign of, you know, unhealthiness and and lead to problems. But overweightness in itself is not really what necessarily the only – Like health issue that these types of UPFs
3: cause. And I love that you said overweightness. We're we're finding our way through the language. But one of the things in the book I try and do is whenever we talk about weight, the conversation is just separating with shame and guilt. And for a long time, people who live with excess weight, people who live in larger bodies, people who live with obesity have felt that they are to blame. They are the weak-willed ones and it's their fault. And it really isn't. And in fact, There's a very reasonable argument that most of the harm that comes from being larger comes from the stigma that you experience particularly from doctors so i I just want to say to anyone listening you know if you are struggling with your weight it really isn't you it's the food and the invitation in my book is very much keep eating the food it's i'm not saying stop this my hope and my experience with many readers and my family is that by the end of the book you will probably not be able to eat the food anymore. I've I've written it using quite a well-evidenced psychological technique where you just keep eating that food while you read the ingredients lists and I'll tell you what it does to you. So in terms of what it does, the big health effects that we know now that it has, there's very, very good data. Weight gain is the one that's most studied and so that's the thing I probably talk about more than any other. But we also know that this food is now the leading cause of early death on planet Earth for humans and for animals. It's overtaken tobacco products globally, and that's also true in in the US and and the UK. And so it causes early death through a lot of different mechanisms, but it's associated with uh, early deaths from cancer, heart attacks, strokes, other vascular disease, metabolic disease like type two diabetes, inflammatory diseases like Crohn's disease, um, mental health problems like anxiety and depression, Possibly an a attention deficit disorder, um, and it's also associated with dementia. Which, if you have a family history of dementia, might be possibly the most terrifying effect of all. Mm-hmm. And so, it's it's very unsurprisingly, I would say, associated with a very long list of negative health outcomes. Um, Which you could experience even
1: if you are not overweight, I think we should say. That's right? very
3: important to yeah. say. And that's one of the dilemmas around the new anti-obesity drugs like Azempic, Wegovy, semaglutide. Right. Um, the drugs um, may reduce your calorie intake, but if you are forced through your economic circumstances to continue to eat ultra-processed food, as a huge number of people in the States have to do, then... Uh, the Azempic probably won't offset those other harms
1: we are talking about ultra processed food with chris van telekin a scientist doctor and author of ultra processed people the science behind the food that isn't food and we should note that you ate all this food while learning about these health effects so we'll talk about that after the break thanks for joining us we'll be right back Welcome back to Forum. Marisa Lagos here and for Mina Kim, we are talking about ultra-processed food. Those foods commonly wrapped in plastic containing at least one ingredient you wouldn't find in your kitchen with Chris Van Tullican. He is author of the new book Ultra-Processed People, the science behind the food that isn't food. He's also a scientist and doctor. And we want to hear from you. Do you try to limit how much processed food you eat or give your kids? Are you concerned about processed foods in your diet? Do you try to avoid them? What are your strategies? You can email us at forum at kqed.org you can also find us on twitter facebook and instagram at kqed forum or give us a call now we're at 866-733-6786 that is 866-733-6786 and chris um i we brought up kids in that call out because i have two kids i mean Honestly, as I started reading seven and ten, and as I started reading your book, I thought, We eat really healthy. And then I looked at the snack cabinet and I went, "Mm, Maybe not, (laughs) because it is hard. Um, And as you know, this isn't something that most of us have the sort of financial and logistical ability to totally cut out. but Before we get to all that, though, can you talk a little bit about, you kind of did an experimental diet while you underwent this research and, and did this book. What did you do and what did you learn?
3: So I, uh, we set up, a, a, I was the first participant in a much larger trial that we're now running at my university, London University College. And um, the idea was I would eat 80% of my calories from ultra processed food for one month. And I had a washout period before and we measured lots of things uh, that would, that might change in my body. And I partnered with some of the world's leading nutritional scientists who are my, my colleagues at the university. And we, this was not an extreme diet, I should say. So this is a diet of a very typical us or UK teenager. 80% of calories is very normal to get from food. It's about 20% of adults do that anyway. And I wasn't force feeding myself. I was just eating like I usually do, which I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a guy who's a normal weight, a healthy weight, and I generally eat what I want when I want. So three things happened. I gained so much weight that in, if I would continued the diet for a year, I would have doubled my body weight. Wow. The second thing is we measured my hormone response to a meal. So um, you have hormones that go up and tell you to stop eating or tell you to start eating. And my hunger hormone it, response to a standard meal at the end of a month, was still sky high. At the end of that meal, so these are products that seem to be interfering with our body's ability to say, "I am full. I can stop eating now." And that the fact that we even have that system may be news to lots of people. A lot of people think, "Oh, we, you know, humans have evolved in times of scarcity, so we just eat. We would eat constantly if food was available." That's not true. Um, obesity with abundant food is extremely rare. Um, if people eat real food, it's all, almost unheard of. And the third thing was we did a, a brain scan and the, that was kind of the most alarming bit. I thought nothing would happen. I'm I was 42 when I did the experiment. We saw huge changes in connect connectivity between the habit bits of my brain at the back and those reward bits, the reptilian bits right in the center.
1: And I mean, that's I know a little controversial. Some other scientists have and the food industry has pushed back on the idea of, of, you know, fast food and junk food and UPFs being quote unquote addictive. But I mean, there's addictive can mean a lot of things, right? It doesn't mean your body is necessarily physically addicted to it, like it would be an opioid, but you can create brain receptors that create cravings and, and make you act in ways you probably wouldn't otherwise.
3: The evidence that this food is as addictive as um, chemicals like opioids or tobacco or alcohol for the people who are addictive um, is very, very, very robust. It's it's and and people can ask this, so people um, listening uh, will be able to say, well, how do I feel? about the foods I really, really love mm. compared to cigarettes, alcohol, or if people have tried drugs of abuse, people may have tried painkillers after operations. I mean, addiction we define as use of a substance is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that's likely to have been caused by the substance. Now, ultra-processed food meets that criteria absolutely. So it, it we know that there are properties of it that form chemical addictions. We can scan people's brains and show that they become addicted. We can ask them questionnaires. And we can ask the simple question, how easy do people find it to quit? And people find it really, really hard to quit. And we know that because um, so, so few people manage to lose weight in the modern US or the UK without, frankly, without surgery or drugs.
1: Well, you've hit on the idea, though, that this is really difficult to avoid, not only just because of the ubiquitousness of UPFs, but also because of cost, right? And and, and the sort of society we live in, um, you know, actually, this is a great opportunity to read a comment from Jackie who writes... It's incredibly easy to make granola and granola bars that taste good and healthy and last. A few simple ingredients, any kind of nut butter and eggs, some oats and nuts, raisins, or other dried fruit if you need to mix it all together. Squish it in a pan, bake it, cut it, wrap it, and stick it in the fridge. Please encourage listeners to find simple ways to have delicious and simple food. It's better for the planet and better for them. Totally true. Thank you, Jackie. That's a great recipe. On the other hand, we know that not everybody's going to whip up an aioli instead of grabbing that, you know, Hellman's mayonnaise. So. is yeah, there a Jackie point? makes? Yeah, Jackie ahead.
3: makes an incredible point because what Jackie's showing is my 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 guess is she's a, a highly intelligent, educated person. She has a fridge. She has um, a load of ingredients in her larder. She has a cooker. She has a pan. She has greaseproof paper. She has skills and knowledge, and all of those things um, take time and money. The time is money. The skills are, are handed down through generations, but just. Paying for that cooker to run and having the fridge to run to store it, those seem like very trivial expenses if you're middle class. Right. If you're someone at the low end of the income spectrum, having owning Tupperware is really complicated. Owning the spices that will make those granola bars really flavoursome, a bit of cinnamon, a grating of nutmeg, really, really expensive. Owning the knife to chop up the ingredients, the dates, the nuts, um, people don't often have the equipment. And in the UK, you know we. It, the same will be true in the US, us but in the uk there are a million households without a cooker or a freezer mm. and so these these proposals of eating you know simple cheap easy food anyone can buy a, a bowl a bag of porridge that's true but you have to factor in a lot of other costs and we, we know that real food is much much more expensive um, in time and money than than ultra processed
1: food So I know you're not here to tell us what to eat or what not to eat. But I do wonder, Chris, (laughs) uh, is there a tipping point that you all have found in the research? Like we say 60 percent is of our diets on average is made up of this. If we can't cut it out entirely, is there a percentage we should be aiming for?
3: it's, It's a great question. So my I pretty much refuse to give anyone advice. I don't know you. I don't know your budget. I don't know your preferences. I don't know what constrains you in life. But my feeling is there are two types of people if someone listening recognizes that they have an addicted relationship with these products, whether it's their bread or their spreads or their chips or the frozen pizza, um, they may find abstinence, the best policy that that's what I do. Um, I have the money and the resources and the knowledge and skills to do it. Um, Just through the accident, the fortune of my birth. Um, Some people may be lucky enough to do that and abstinence would be good. And, And so my book you run the experiment while you while you read the book. The invitation is just to eat while you read and you'll be unable to, to keep eating at the end. Now, lots of people um, can can be moderate. It's, it's a bit like alcohol or cigarettes. Lots of people can go out on a Friday night and have you know a couple of beers, a couple of glasses of wine and never develop a problem relationship with alcohol. But those same people might be casually drinking a glass of wine every night. And that we know would be harmful. Um, same with the UPF. If you want to have a treat, once or twice a week, and for kids, it really, I think, should be a treat, you know, at a birthday party, um, then there's very little harm in that, just in the way there's very little harm in a couple of glasses of wine a week. But if, if you find that you are addicted, if you recognize that in yourself, you may find abstinence easier than moderation. And the, the book is written like the quit smoking book that was a huge bestseller. And it's very well evidenced to work where you keep smoking while you read. And that's my invitation to the reader.
1: So then what do you give your kids when they're going to the park?
3: So my kids eat quite a lot of ultra processed food because I want them to be normal. <laughs> you know, being a kid, a cute huge... So I have a, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. They go to parties, they go to their friend's house. I can't... You have much less control over what your kids eat than I ever thought. I didn't realize this. I know. It's kind of
1: incredible, right? Yes. Okay, but what you have control over—packing their lunches, taking them on a an outing—I mean, are you? So what do they get? They get
3: no. I'm. I'm. So what they get when they eat with me is I do make that granola bar recipe that Jackie gave. (laughs) I'll make a thing like that. I make sandwiches with real bread. They get bits of cheese. They get carrot sticks, bananas. I will buy them a pack of just plain salted. Potato crisps, that actually isn't ultra-processed. It's when they add the flavourings and all the maltodextrin and the the weird stuff they become. <laughs> the stuff that tastes good. <laughs> the stuff that tastes so good. Well, the interesting thing is the science shows us this food doesn't taste good. People don't actually enjoy this food. And if you if you sit down with those crisps, with the flavouring and the maltodextrin mm-hmm. and the dextrose and the flavour enhancers, and you really chew them up, you will find, said, that they stop tasting good at all. It's It's food that's not designed to be inspected it's designed yeah. to be inhaled as quickly as possible
1: absolutely all right i want to bring a caller in jonathan and petaluma go ahead
2: hey what's going on you know i'm, I'm listening to this conversation and when he brought up the addiction part is something that i wasn't thinking about commenting about um i remember an episode of family guy <laughs> i don't know if you guys watch that <laughs> but Oh there's yes. an episode Love where it. there's a lady she's sitting in a restaurant and she takes a sip of her Diet Coke and she goes, "Now I can eat whatever I want. And we have this addiction to, you know, low, uh, low nutritional foods with high calorie intake. And we're wondering why we're not losing weight because we keep eating things that aren't nutritionally good. And um, with that addiction, especially to things like Diet Coke, if you go to any grocery store, Diet Coke sells out on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. There is an absolute addictive quality to Diet Coke. And I'm wondering when the FDA is going to actually say something about it. But other than that, um, you know, we have ways that we could actually help people, you know, get more nutritionally dense uh, items. And the proof in the pudding is how Costco is able to sell their, I believe, their whole chickens for $5, even though they're taking a loss. They're doing that to bring customers in. Mm. When you look at a lot of the restaurants that we have that are even fast food, McDonald's, I think, has an oatmeal that they sell or something like that. But it's $3. Mm. Nobody's going to buy it for three dollars. If you sell it for a dollar, which it's actually worth, people will probably eat that and be satisfied. And you know, you can probably get I think a smoothie there from like two dollars, a three dollar meal, and you've got a fruit smoothie and oatmeal for breakfast or something. A lot of people will come there, but I think they're dropping the ball, yeah. and people aren't going very much because it's of course McDonald's.
1: Yeah, no, it's so. a great point, Jonathan. And I think about this a lot when I travel because I'm a pretty like simple breakfast eater. I like like an egg or two or plain. You know, yogurt with fruit. It's like impossible to get that if you're on the go, like like the the yogurt has flavors in it, you know, like the it's just it's hard to get just like regular whole foods if you're trying to do it on the go.
3: I think that's right. Can I say of all the callers I've ever had in on any radio show, there was more density and content in that brief Jonathan, synopsis from Family Guy. It was genius. <laughs> I should have interviewed Jonathan for, for the book. There's a I do, oh, One person I quote, I don't quote Family Guy, but I quote Donald Trump in my book. He sends out a bunch of um, tweets in 2012 about Diet Coke. And his theory is it makes you hungry. And 11 years after he sent those tweets and a lot of water has passed under the bridge with Donald Trump but he was right it turns out the World Health Organization has just released a position statement on artificial sweeteners and they do not help you lose weight and a lot this is one of the aspects of our food that is gaslighting us is is the diet stuff does not help weight loss it may even drive metabolic disease. And there is some evidence that the artificial, the non-nutritive sweeteners in things like Diet Coke actually drive weight gain. So I I think those points are very profound and we understand some of how that works. But yes, essentially when you're out and about All that is available to you on the U.S. highway if you stop at a gas station or if you're out in town and you want to get a sandwich or something quick for lunch and I've spent a lot of time in the States, it's the same in the U.K. All that's available is ultra-processed food.
1: Absolutely. We're getting a lot of questions about what our food is wrapped in. Uh, Holly writes, can you please address the health impacts of consuming food and beverages that come in plastic, including bottled water? Plastic is largely made of fossil fuels and contains multiple chemicals, most of which are untested, that leaks into what we consume. Studies are showing that many of these chemicals are endocrine disruptors, carcinogens, and otherwise unhealthy. And Chris, before you answer that, Usha from Fremont also has a question about this.
5: Exactly. Hi, good morning. Morning. This is my second time morning, I'm seeing you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for calling. No, of course. Um, the, the reason I'm concerned is the packaging. Exactly what she said. Um, you know, the, it is wrapped in a Plastic, or in a can, but poured in a can.
1: These things react differently with all the preservatives, so that's what I'm concerned about. Right, and even so, like Whole Foods are coming in plastic these days. You go to Trader Joe's, and all the fruits and vegetables are coming in plastic. So, I mean, Chris, what do you think? And is there is there a difference between you know some of these? Uh,
3: it's it's a it's a great question. The problem of things being wrapped in plastic. Um, is one of about 10 mechanisms that we think ultra-processed food is driving these harms. For a long time, the people who objected to things like plastics in our food or weird artificial chemicals were very successfully branded as hippies, by the food industry or by adherence to kind of modern life Mm -hmm. and they were branded anti-progress and i think now the evidence is very strongly that the the phrase endocrine disruptors was used that's one of the ways they drive harm they're probably also carcinogenic one of the problems is we test the plastic when you just wrap food it's Fairly inert. We don't know a huge amount, but probably having a loaf of bread wrapped in plastic isn't too bad. It's when you cook food in the plastic, which Mm -hmm. of course we all do in the microwave, um, that seems to be driving migrants or migratory uh, molecules. And the other thing is when you store food in plastic for many years, as, as some of the products are designed to be stored, then we also think that causes harm. And then the plastics end up in the environment where they're consumed by animals and make their way out the food chain and make their way into our food themselves. So that, yes, the plastics are one of the problems, and they are a very big one.
1: And I would think that if we talk about things like endocrine disruptors or the possibility of carcinogenic chemicals, that this is even more dangerous for young people, right, whose bodies are still developing.
3: So young people eat more food as a proportion of their body weight. So all of the harms in children are exaggerated. And exactly as you say, their, their bodies are still developing harm. So yes, we children are much more affected by these problems. And this is all happening in a context of severely falling. Uh, global fertility, but particularly fertility in places like the States. And we don't know, it's very hard to study fertility. We don't have lots of good assays, but we know that these chemicals disrupt the systems that govern our fertility. And so it's it's a good bet that that is playing a part. The regulation, a couple of people have brought up regulation and when are people going to look into this? What I really found distressing is um, the chapter in my book about the Food and Drug Administration in the States, which really astoundingly does not functionally regulate any food additives to any meaningful degree. And that, that was one of the most surprising things I found writing the book.
1: Yeah, this is all sounding familiar to somebody who got really deep in the weeds in this when I was pregnant and concerned about what I was passing on to my kids. Um, We're talking about ultra-processed food with Chris Van Tulliken. He's a scientist, doctor, award-winning BBC broadcaster, and author of Ultra-Processed People, the science behind the food that isn't food. And we do want to hear from you. Are you concerned about processed foods in your diet? What do you offer your kids that's not ultra-processed? With no judgment, how much of your diet would you estimate is made up by UPFs? Or maybe even what's your favorite UPF? Um, we are here. Email us at forum at kqed.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED forum, Or please give us a call. We're at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Chris Van Tilken is here. He is a public health expert and here to answer your questions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Forum. Marisa Lagos here and Fermina Kim, we're talking with Chris Van Tulliken, author of the new book, Ultra Processed People, The Science Behind the Food That Isn't Food. Chris, I want to get into some solutions, but we do have a couple questions here about fake meat. Noel tweets, what is your opinion on cultured meats, cells taken from a live animal and cultured in a lab, then built into a piece of meat? Instead of slaughtering animals, some see a better alternative with these forms of meat, but how nutritious is is it?
3: The problem with food is it's really, really complicated. <laughs> we, we have this idea that because some of the chemicals in our food have very long names, that we're pretty good at rebuilding food from its basic constituents, but we're not, and that's one of the reasons ultra-processed food is harmful. It lacks the complex matrix of real food. Mm-hmm. So when you eat a piece of steak, lots of the micronutrients, the minerals, the vitamins in the steak are bound up with other molecules in ways that make them bioavailable and make them absorbed at the right quantities at the right point in the gut. And the meat itself, when you chew it, it exercises your jaw muscles, it builds bone density in your jaw, and the chewing stimulates all kinds of hormones inside your body that prepare it. Now, lab-grown meat is not gonna have that three-dimensional structure. It's unlikely to have the same uh, molecular structure. And so it might be as good as real meat, but it almost certainly won't be because you haven't evolved to eat it. In terms of carbon, there are good estimates that for a very long time, lab-grown meat will be much more carbon-intensive mm. than, uh, than properly farmed and reared um, uh, real meat. So it may not even be a carbon benefit. The vegan meats are ultra-processed. Um, they are better for the planet than real meat, but the one thing I'd say is if you're an ethical vegan and you buy a lot of these vegan meats, you know, the the, the fake sausages and the those the, the whether it's made from fungi and, yeah. or yeah, exact all that stuff, they're all made by the same set of companies um that make your real meat. And so <laughs> you are still part of the same uh, financial problem and part of the same system driving the issue. So um I it, it's a it's a tick, ticklish one they are better for the planet but they are almost certainly not better for your body because they're engineered to be consumed to excess.
1: And to be clear we I don't know if we'll go too deep on this but we talked about the kind of harms of the packaging potential harms and uh, you know a lot of this is really bad for the environment as well, correct? I mean, this is doing enormous harm on multiple levels when we talk about the way these chemicals are created um, and, mo- and the way this type of food is moved around the planet. The logic of ultra
3: processed food, the reason it's so cheap, is because its primary ingredients are these enormous uh, commodity crops that are grown at vast scale, primarily for animal food. So the basic ingredients on almost all of your ultra-processed food products, whether it's bread or pizza or frozen desserts or ready meals, whatever it is, will be protein isolates from soy or corn, for example, um, oils from palm, soy, corn, sunflowers, and then carbohydrates from rice, wheat, corn, soy. So th- the same very limited set of crops are grown The basic molecules are extracted, chemically modified, and the food is then reassembled. Mm -hmm. Now, this farming system contributes to um, the the leading cause of biodiversity loss. It's the leading cause of plastic pollution. It's the second leading cause of carbon emissions. So this is a system that is designed for sort of cheap global commodity trade, but it's it's incredibly harmful. And it's run by this very small group of companies who have, as I say, this legal obligation to generate money. And that, that is at the root of the problem. That's not a trivial thing to solve.
1: And uh, we've talked, I want to talk a little bit about solutions too. We do have more questions, but, you know, you talked about government regulation um, and it does seem that some of the same sort of behaviors by these corporations that we've seen, say, in the tobacco industry, um, the oil industry, like they have funded research trying to push back on a lot of the contentions you're making, correct?
3: Yeah, because the book is selling a lot in the UK, the, the pushback from the food industry is starting to get quite severe. So I spend a certain amount of every day now dealing with um people who are indirectly funded in in quite sort of difficult to uncover ways but we're, we're dealing with that the a huge amount of the research around food and nutrition is funded by the food industry and they're doing exactly following that tobacco industry playbook of sowing doubt and confusion um the theory of ultra-processed food is incredibly straightforward it's just that food made by these big companies using weird chemicals um is not the same as food made at home mm. and they they are sowing enormous amounts of confusion by funding research that is fundamentally bogus. The Coca-Cola company, if I can name a brand, this is very widely reported, and I spend a chapter on it in the book, funded a huge amount of research as well as public health programs saying that exercise is medicine. That was a Coca-Cola trademarked phrase. And they promoted the idea that if you ate too many calories, you could simply go for a run and burn it off. This idea is completely false. It's intuitively correct, but it is wrong. It's very well proven to be wrong. If you eat too many calories, you cannot burn them off Mm. by going for a run. And we know that exercise is not associated with weight loss. Uh, Exercise is really good for you. I wouldn't want anyone to stop exercising, but it, it really won't help you lose weight
1: um uh, i'm gonna go to comments next i just do want to note in california there's a pending uh, piece of legislation that would ban the manufacture sale and distribution of foods containing brominated vegetable oil potassium bromate purple paraben titanium dioxide and red dye number three just Mm. thoughts on that i mean are those uh, you've listed (laughs) way other things too yeah
3: these are molecules we've known for... a. I mean, bromine is related to chlorine and iodine. It's incredibly toxic. You know, it was used as a kind of anti-fertility drug in the early part of the 20th century. These are molecules we've known for a very long time, very harmful, that we're even discussing now, uh, you know, in 2023, banning them in our diet is absurd. These aren't necessary molecules. So it it speaks to, you know... that. I think in the UK we have a lot of data that people are increasingly enthusiastic about the government they have elected protecting them from giant corporations they have not elected. and We have a huge amount of evidence that all companies behave in the same way. We also know that if we regulate companies, that doesn't mean we're anti-capitalist or that we're anti-growth. We have very well-regulated sectors like pharma and tobacco where they make enormous amounts of money. They employ lots of people. Um, But we have regulated the harms that they do. So are you talking about
1: like warning labels? I mean, I don't think you're a proponent of necessarily banning these foods, right?
3: No, definitely not. You can't. This is essential food for all of us at the moment. And it's the way the whole global food system is built. But the first thing you do is you you treat it like cigarettes. So you need to do a whole bunch of different things. The first thing you do is you ban the marketing of the food. So in the U.S., children, particularly with low incomes, are saturated in marketing for this it's all their social media apps the games are funded by the food companies um every ticket they buy yeah. all their movies it's they're, they're and not to mention the the animals and the cartoon characters in the pack so you need to ban all that just as you would with cigarettes um once you've done that you need to label the packs and they've done this very successfully in latin america in the us and the uk we've been eating this stuff for six seven decades it's it's snuck up on us mm. in mexico chile brazil the transition was so sudden that it was completely obvious that the epidemic of diabetes and weight gain was all due to ultra-processed food. So in those countries, they're putting big black hexagons on the food and and labelling it. But maybe the main thing we need to do is reduce poverty. Um, if If you get rid of poverty, people can buy real food, and they generally do.
1: Well, one listener tweets, it's not just the processing, but the ingredients that are allowed in our foods, many of which are not allowed in EU countries. Same brand of food in USA and EU, but ingredients are different. Another listener says the terms organic, healthy and natural are so misused in advertising, but only by having education on nutrition in school at every year of children's education can this be overcome. Holly says, I don't let my kids eat any Quaker Oats products like granola bars or plain oatmeal or other corporate foods that contain Glyphos- glyphosate, and other harmful pesticides. At the same time, any, quote, unprocessed or low-processed food contain pesticides, oats, and strawberries, for example. And Karen in Menlo Park, I want to bring you in. Karen, you're on the line.
5: Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll keep my comment brief, but I do quite a lot of volunteer work at my daughter's elementary school. And through the state of California, all students are um, eligible to receive free breakfast and free lunch. And quite, I'm horrified by the fact that 95% of what is served is ultra-processed, number one, and number two, it's heated and served in plastic. And this, you go back to the idea of poverty. It's the children that are needing these free lunches that are being um, you know, practically poisoned, in my opinion.
1: Thanks, Karen. I mean, that also brings up a point, like, whenever we get requests for snacks at schools, especially in the post-COVID era, it's, like, prepackaged because, you know, for— Uh, sanitary reasons and ease and all of this. But it's, again, kind of back to this idea, Chris, that the most vulnerable among us are the ones who are most likely to be exposed to all of this stuff.
3: The big brands... Um, that we we don't necessarily think of as luxe brands, but the brands when you buy a cola, you know, the big cola brands, are very much more expensive than the, the very, very cheap colas that you would buy at the, the dollar store places. And so the most affected people by this crisis are uh, indigenous communities, people of colour, people without addresses, the most vulnerable, and especially children. And I think a lot of the listeners are speaking to this problem that this is while those people are the most affected, we are all increasingly affected. The plastics are now everywhere. And this food has become so normal that what we know is that all demographics, all ethnicities uh, and both uh, and all 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 genders um, are gaining weight. Although at, at differential rates, so no one no one is is escaping this onslaught, and and, and we should note regulation... again,
1: right, that sometimes Sorry. it's not just weight; it can be, uh, you know, diabetes, other uh, other health impacts. I mean, people can appear to be of a healthy weight and still be having suffering some of these uh, consequences.
3: Yes, all of the research that's been done has controlled for weight, so we know that it it co- this food causes obesity. Yes. But independent of that, it also causes strokes and heart attacks, i.e. if you're not eating so much that you gain weight or you're not genetically predisposed to gain weight, having enough of this food in your diet will still put you at risk of the cancers, the inflammatory disease, the metabolic disease, and so on.
1: Yes. Well, Lisa says, I switched to a whole food plant-based diet four years ago. Nowhere in nature do you find fat, sugar, and salt in any combination. I lost 40 pounds and feel healthier than I've ever felt. I have multiple cirrhosis, and it got me off the couch and out of the house. I'm 63 years old and love this life. Beans, potatoes, and rice are not expensive. Another listener says, I work in a local hospital. Regardless of the emitting diagnosis, almost all my patients have a metabolic condition like diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, et cetera. Usually by default, they're prescribed certain food products that are processed to the hilt. Sure, they're formulated to have a certain number of carbohydrates, protein and salt but they're also full of artificial sweeteners and chemicals and fillers that are at best not really helping at worst tricking those who suffer the most from these conditions into thinking that these processed foods are actually good for them this is forum i am marisa lagos and for Mina kim um all right did you want to respond to either of those chris sorry i know you uh were was... i think i think yeah. the
3: the, the medical foods is really interesting that, that, that we, we are often prescribing weight loss sachets, nutritional supplements that are ultra processed and people will have had this experience. They eat these weight loss foods and they might lose a little bit of weight if they really if they really put their mind to it for six months. People can do really heroic things. But in the long term, they always bounce back and they gain more weight. And I, the, the shame associated with this is so severe. Um, I mean, the comment about the, the epidemic of metabolic disease really resonated with me as a physician. Mm-hmm. So, so many, this is common to all my patients as well.
1: Yeah. All right. I want to bring in another caller. Sarah in Oakland, go ahead. Hello. Um, thank you
5: for taking my call and thank you for your comments. I wanted to push back just a little bit on what I'm hearing in this program as a mother who has two daughters with uh, eating disorders and I hear your guest being very careful about how he talks about how people should personally handle the problem of overprocessed processed foods. But for kids like my daughters, um, calories are calories that are saving their lives. And we're finding that kids that are getting this health education in schools about some foods being bad, um, if they're predisposed genetically to an eating disorder, this can be information that can then trigger them to stop eating or stop eating fatty foods and then they end up um really sick and so i feel like mm-hmm. it's a little problematic to come at this from um the consumer's standpoint especially with eating disorders going up uh, numbers of eating disorders going up right now yeah. and i love the idea of addressing it you know from what we actually the foods that are
1: presented what's in them you know yeah,
5: so just wanted
1: to comment. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thank you for your call, Chris.
3: It's such it's such an important point. I'm really glad Sarah mentioned that. I mean, there are two schools of thought. When 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 kids are struggling to eat things, then calories, exactly as she says, are calories. And restriction, we know that res- food restrictions are harmful. Um, I don't think that should uh, prevent us criticizing the companies that make harmful food. A lot of my colleagues who work in eating disorders are increasingly concerned that, in fact, these foods may be at the root of eating disorders, the way they train our palates in early life, the confusion between sweet taste in the mouth with calories that never arrive in the case of the sweeteners and other molecules that tell kind of physiological lies, the way these foods are aggressively marketed and the fact they Inflamous, many of the foods contain neurotransmitters. So a lot of my colleagues feel, in fact, the ultra processed food is responsible for the eating disorders. And these foods, we are – the research is pretty clear. They are the only foods that people binge on. And so the cycle of – for many people, obesity is an eating disorder. So if you find that you're in a binge-purge cycle, most people will find they are not binging on food that they make at home. They're not binging on their mum's lasagna or – cake they've baked themselves, they're binging on the ultra processed products they buy in the store. So it's Sarah, it's a really important point, the conversation, we try and have it with kindness. I think it is important to critique never the people who buy this food and acknowledge that it has many, many medical uses. But we, we must criticize the companies. And the way it is marketed and people do need, in my opinion, to be aware of the harms.
1: Yeah. And Andy writes, you know, notes how government subsidized corn, rice, soy and other um, kind of key ingredients here, therefore making UPFs cheaper than whole fruits and vegetables. Right. All right. We're going to end with one last caller. Corey in Redwood City, go ahead.
5: Hi there. Yeah, I was calling in to say, you know, I try to do, you know, nine times out of ten for my meals, I'm eating pretty healthy, home-cooked stuff. But like any, uh, in my opinion, normal adult, enjoy craving, uh, you know, we'll have a crave for Doritos or Oreos or something ultra-processed. I was wondering if there was any tips on kind of how to check off those cravings with better alternative options.
1: Awesome question, Chris. I know you don't I like to that. give advice, but... <laughs>
3: no, I'm look, the main invitation of the book is I, I think if you become a connoisseur of this food. So get your get your Doritos, get whatever your snack of choice is, and really enjoy it. Take the breaks off, like don't worry about it. Read the packet and read about ultra processed food. You can read my book, or there are lots of other sources if you can't afford to buy my book. There's a, a great long read in the Guardian that you can download for free. Um, Understand what the food is doing and just go through what I did. Go on an 80% ultra processed food diet for a few weeks and you will find that this is not food that stands up to scrutiny. You will start to taste the non-nutritive sweeteners have a metallic oddity and they leave you craving sugar. The uh, the flavor enhancers um, prepare your body to receive protein and when it never arrives, when you just eat them in potato, pap, chips... um, you are left physiologically confused and start to eat the food outside of its packaging. Um, uh, you, this is food often that has to be presented in a very particular mm. way, Let it get a little stale. So try and find the food a bit disgusting. It, this food <laughs> is very easy to become disgusted with. The downside is it will cost you money. It will cost you time. And so, Um, that's why I don't give advice but my very biggest amount of love and luck to anyone who tries
1: That's Chris Van, telekin doctor, scientist and author of Ultra Processed People The Science Behind the Food That Isn't Food Thank you Chris so much
3: Thank you so much
1: And thank you all for your wonderful calls and comments This was a great segment It was produced by Caroline Smith I'm Marisa Lagos in today for Mina Kim You're listening to Forum I'll be back tomorrow Tune in
0: Natural, just as healthy as I can be. But at
1: night, I'm a junk food chunky.
0: Good Lord, have pity on me. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.